Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director of the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Professor David Faber. He is a professor of law at the Michigan State College of Law. He's an expert and a pioneer in the area of animal law. He's written a number of books and articles dealing with animal law issues. And he's introduced the idea of animals as living property Welcome to the show, David. It's really a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. You know, and I think a lot of our listeners might be wondering, well, what is animal law? And maybe you could give us a little description of what that is and how it impacts people who love animals. All right. Well, we have animals all around us in all sorts of different categories. We have animals that we pet in the morning. We have animals that we eat at night. We have animals that we go visit and see in movies and all sorts of things and on and National Geographic shows, and we don't put them all together as a package and think about animals as a group. And animal law sort of tries to bring together a concern for animals that moves between the different categories that we humans use for animals. And people are always surprised when when I talk about animal law because it deals with criminal law and the cruelties. It deals with trust in estates with the creation of trust for animals. It deals with property law and the transfer of ownership and sales of animals on the Internet and things like destruction of animals that take uh, cargo flights instead of cars. And there's just a wide assortment of various things which are drawn together with, at least for some of us, the concern for the well-being of these animals and how they're treated by humans. It sounds like a really broad application of a, a variety of different laws to a, just a, uh, the subject matter of animals. Is that right? Yes, it is. And and a lot of people have come across animals within the various subcategories, but not too many people think about it from a general public policy point of view of, well, how should we interact with these animals? What is our duty to them? And how do we implement that duty in the various categories that we use the animals for? And Professor Favor, maybe you could help our listeners understand how the law, you know, putting air quotes around that, treats animals or thinks about animals traditionally, and, and is that changing? Well, it's a, a long history. As you might imagine, animals have been the subject of law since they started to write laws millennia ago because animals were valuable. They were commercially valuable. They were one of the first things that were traded and kept in and sold uh, between individual human beings. And so animals as property, as valuable assets, uh, have been a long part of the legal system. And we can see pretty easily up until uh, after the Civil War in 1867 in New York, all the laws pretty much dealt with the idea of protecting one's property value. But then we had a little sea change in New York. Henry Berg got a law adopted in New York, which became the, the model that many, many states have used ever since then. And that is, no, they're not just property. They are beings that can suffer and feel pain. And we have an obligation to not inflict unnecessary pain and suffering. 
And so that became, over 100 years ago, our legal perception is that unnecessary pain and suffering will be made illegal in, in our country. That has what what is unnecessary pain and suffering, of course, is a huge social political debate. But that pretty much is where we still are today in the criminal law side of things. I'm sorry. So there's really two things. There's there's still this issue of, or this idea of animals as property, buying and selling. You know, even goes back to Jack and the Beanstalk, right? Trading three beans for the family cow. And right. But, but then there's also an idea of the treatment, the cruelty, the criminalization of animal cruelty. Yep. That that's uh, one of our oldest changes uh, that we've had in the United States. That doesn't exist in many other countries yet. The developed countries, yes, but a lot of countries still don't have the basic cruelty laws that we have here in the United States. Has anything happened in the last 100 years since Henry Berg? Yes, I I think that, well, two things, two major things which go in very different directions. One is that companion animals in the past 20 or 30 years have really started to explode as an important category of animals and animals that have become much more emotionally close to us. You might look back and think about, well, uh, those of us have been around them for a while, but dogs and cats weren't always in the house and certainly not in your bed, but that has become uh, much more acceptable because of the health that we can provide these animals now, that they can live with us and they are living with us. On the other side, we've had this industrialization of farm animals to the point where they would not be recognizable to a hundred years ago, a farmer raised animals, and they were just part of his local community, and he took care of them. And now we have a whole different system that is producing much more cruelty and difficulties for the animals than there was 100 years ago. Well, these are really, I think, it's very interesting because what you're pointing out is the really the breadth of ways in which animals impact humanity and the ways in which we impact them and the, and, and how complicated and broad standing it is. Let's can we focus a little bit on the companion animals because this is a topic about divorce and I think the idea of companion animals and how they interact with our families and and what we're going to do with them in that context is really relevant for many of our listeners. And right, sure. you know, and one of the things that you, you know, you talked about was creation of trusts for animals and, you know, Leona Helmsley famously left the majority of her estate to her dog, I believe. I don't remember the details. And, you know, in in some ways there was much derision about that for, you know, and people laughing and making fun of it and and obviously uh, challenging her estate. But that's really a serious thing that people consider, you know, protecting their animals after their death. Isn't that true? Yes. I think it's something that those of the attorneys have always run across, particularly with elderly clients that do have a few resources that they they really have an emotional attachment to the animals and they want to make sure the animals are taken care of because they don't know what might happen to the animals afterwards. And the law was way behind this. It wasn't until the 1990s that the law began to shift in that area. Before that, you could not create a trust that would be directly for the benefit of an animal. But beginning in the late 90s, the uniform Act for trust included a new provision that said you can create a trust for animals that can be enforced by third parties. And that slowly has spread so that almost all the states now have adopted some variation of that in their state trust law. And now almost everybody can be accommodated for taking care of their animal. Leona Hemsley, I think, was a bad example, of course, because she left $10 million for this little dog 
who needed a private chef to provide for its well-being. And so it, it sort of trivialized the idea that regular good people might just want to have, you know, some thousands of dollars set aside for an animal. What changed that allowed trusts to be set aside or created for the benefit of animals? I think that we would say that the lawyers drafting that became more attuned to the social desire for it to happen. And again, because we were increasing the number of companion animals in the United States, and there really isn't a reason not to do it. You know, there's nothing that's against it except history and the fact that it's old and this is the way they used to do it. But it's also the increased visibility of animals and the acceptance of the reality of how, at least with some people, that emotional bond with the animals is real and important. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm talking today with Professor David Favor about animals and the law. And Professor Favor, I think that it is true that people have become more attached to the idea of animals in their home, and they've become much more a part of our culture. And yet, animals don't have what we call standing. Is that right? In our current laws, meaning they're not viewed as living beings? Uh, well, yes, they, they are, are clearly second-class citizens or third-class citizens, if you would, because they do get special protection, in example, in the anti-cruelty laws. There's no law against destroying your piano or your computer, but there is a law against how you might destroy an animal, yours or somebody else's. So they do have some status above property in various areas, but they can't file any lawsuits. That is quite clear. There's not been a case where an animal's been allowed to be the plaintiff in a lawsuit trying to protect its own interests. So the laws, so those of us in the area of animal law are trying to find alternative paths rather than simply saying an animal should be just the same as a legal person because that's maybe too far for where we are right now in society. And that's why I propose the idea of living property where we still keep the tie uh, between the human and the animal and it doesn't bother me to call it property because I teach property law and I think it's a very respectable word, but other people are are very put out by that word property as being demeaning, and therefore we might want to go to companion animal and guardian as a different kind of language to use in this situation. What is the idea of the living property? Describe what you mean by that and, and how it works. Well, the idea there is it's not unlike a trust arrangement in the sense that the human still has legal control over the animal with whatever limitations the law puts on that legal control, but that the animal has some prestige, some status in having its own title as an equitable title. Uh, those of us who are lawyers know the distinction between law and equity, and as such would have to be given certain respect within the legal system such that when the owner does something that's truly against the interest of the animal, then the law could step in and intervene and remove the animal from a bad situation, perhaps, or otherwise put limitations on how the animal is treated. Professor Faber, you know, just turning our attention for a few minutes to the idea of conflicts between people around animals, you know, how who should get a pet when a couple breaks up, who should get a, a pet when a child leaves home, you know, a variety of things like that. Is there a way to give that pet or that dog or cat or other companion animal some voice in that decision? Well, it's pretty hard at the moment. 
the only place where it's formally recognized now is in Alaska in the divorce proceedings. But but as you suggested in your facts, there's a lot of fact patterns where separation occurs between groups of humans and the animals sort of stuck in the middle. And the property law at the moment is just very inadequate to dealing with this thing. But when people, when a family buys a pet or is given a pet, whichever, they never sit down and do up a prenup or an arrangement that states, you know, well, who actually has control? Who's going to keep this animal? And, you know, what are we going to do if our group breaks up? And so I can't tell you the number of emails I've received over over the last decade or so with very sad stories in them about mothers who gave away the pet when the, the child went off to college. And women have talked to me about how important it would be for them to get the animal in a divorce proceeding. And, of course, I'm saying to myself, well, I don't know whether or not that's a good idea or not, but they're passionate that they should get the animal. And in some ways, animals become a proxy for a lot of the negative things that happen between human beings. And, of course, the animals can't speak for themselves, so it really becomes hard to take apart those fact patterns and decide what really is the best thing to do. What are you being asked to do in these emails, weigh in? Well, yeah, they want me to represent them so they can get their animal. And so this idea that they're going to reach across the country or maybe across the state and ask you to intervene on their behalf as an expert on animals and animal law to say they should get what they want. Is that right? Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I don't do that, of course, for a number of reasons, but mostly because I can't do it except in the context of what's in the best interest of the animal. And there's no way for you to know that from the... Email right. writers, email. There's yeah. also no way for me to project that into the legal system except for Alaska. There are a number of animal groups that have tried to help animals within divorce proceedings over the past uh, 15 or 20 years. And so they submit a, a memorandum of law to the judge saying, why don't you, you're looking at what to do in this divorce, and we know that there's a, a pet within the divorce proceeding. Why don't you look at what is in the best interest of the animal in deciding where to award the ownership. And judges don't really proceed well with that because they know that their law, the law of the state, doesn't allow them to do that. And so some just cut it off and say, no, I can't do it. It's a matter of law. I can't do it. Others say, gee, I wish I could do it, you know, but I don't think I can. And every now and then you get a judge who simply does it and doesn't tell anybody what they're doing. Well, how would they do it? Well, I think that it is parallel to children in the sense that Who has emotional attachment to the animal? Who's been the provider of the animal? Who gives the comfort and support for the animal? Who has the financial well-being to take care of the animal should medical emergencies arise? And and who is going to be able to provide the best quality of life for the animal? And does it have anything to do with the animal's attachment to the people? You know, because when we deal with the best interest of children, I mean, clearly both children we know do well post-divorce when they have a good relationship with both parents and, you know, that they have that ongoing substantive relationship, even though the parents aren't living together. Is there any information or studies about animals? I mean, I guess all I don't want to lump all animals together into just a sort of big bucket, but do you know of anything like that that shows the importance of that ongoing relationship or it's really... It's a more singular thing about who's best able to care for it and maintain a good relationship. Our science is not that far progressed, I'm afraid to say, and not enough people look at at it from the animal's point of view. In other words, they look at it from the human point of view, what happens when you break the ties and humans have depression. 
I also believe a dog could have a depression from having been taken away from the primary provider, but there's there's not any science on showing that consequence, I'm afraid. This is Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. We're here every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 on WBOX and WBOX.com. We're also available as a podcast on my website, www.westchesterfamilylaw.com, and on iTunes and SoundCloud. And we're talking today with David Faber, professor of law at the Michigan State College of Law, who's an expert on animal law, about animal law and animals in divorce. And Professor Faber, is there any way for our listeners to contact you if they have questions or interest in the topic? I, I'm not an expert on divorce, so that no, no, should not call just me the children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm available generally off the website at the law school here, Michigan State University College of Law. Do you get a lot of people contacting you about about divorces? I mean, we, you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the show. No, not a lot. The uh, two topics we receive the most questions about. This is through my website that has all the laws about animals in it. Is one assistance animals and housing, and two animals and parked cars that are getting overheated. So that's our two hot topics. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Let's turn our conversation a little bit to divorce and sure. animal law and the sort of the the interaction between the two because I have had a number of cases over the years and I'm an you know uh, an animal lover myself and I find that people sometimes feel really exercised about and about the animals because you know I think it's not as easy to explain to the animal okay well you're going to spend Monday <laughs> Monday with <laughs> you know Bob and Tuesday with Sally and, you know, Wednesday with Bob and Sally, Bob and Sally, or we're going to go week to week. There's no way to explain to the animal what it is that's going on. And it, you know, interestingly, it really usually means that the primary relationship is going to be with one person going forward. And that is really sometimes very heartbreaking for the other person and sometimes for both people. Right. Yeah, it is. And but I do think it is best to deal with the issue, if at all possible, with the two parties trying to work out what's best for the animal and not taking it to a judge and saying, okay, you make the decision about it because the judge doesn't have the tools with which to do too much in this area. So joint agreements are indeed the best way to go, even though I do agree it's often going to be painful to some of the parties. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes, actually, these have been mediated divorces that where we've really talked about this at really in depth, where they people have had the the opportunity and the time to really talk about what the relationship with the animal means to them, and really think through who's going to be around during the day, who's able to provide the financial and the physical care that the animal or animals need. But oftentimes, it's, it's what's really interesting to me is how, in some ways, and I don't mean to dismiss the way people feel about their children, but in some ways, some of these mediations have been even more emotional than the discussions around children. What do you what? I think part Yeah, go ahead. I, I think part of that is that we all understand and expect the children to grow up and be their own. But the animal is always to be the animal, always to need care, always to be that small emotional component that it is, it's not going to change over time. And therefore, making decisions about what's going to happen is of a more permanent nature in some ways than it is with children. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I also think that what you said earlier about 
the proxy that what we project onto our pets and their inability and un- and they don't, you know, sort of like argue back about that. Our children are like, no, no, that is not who I am. I, you know, <laughs> I am not going to do that with you today. You know, but your dog is always going to be like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> I'm That's up right. to that, right? Oh, yeah. That's a big part of it. The acceptance of the humans by the dogs and cats. Yeah, and I think that the the loss of that is sometimes really, really painful, especially in the face of divorce where you're losing, you know, so much in relationship with the other person and your own identity in the world as well. Right. Yes, absolutely. So you've mentioned Alaska as being a different law. What is the deal with the laws in, around animals in Alaska that's different than everywhere else? Well, it's just... I would not. I would never pick Alaska to be the in the forefront of this issue, but it is. The, one of the senators up there contacted me a little over a year ago and said, "You know, I'm thinking about doing something about animals in divorce. And would you look at the my proposed legislation?" And they sent it to me. And they've done a a really nice job, of, a simple job of amending the law by simply by putting in a couple of phrases not trying to restructure the law, not having huge amounts of detail in the law, not making it overly burdensome on the courts. All they've done is put in that a judge has the authority to make a decision about the placement of a companion animals based upon the best interest of the animal. Stop. That's all it says. But that's all you need to allow a judge to have the authority to proceed with the issue. It doesn't suggest how they do that. That, I think, may be subject to further cases uh, evolving over time, but that they've opened the door for having it happen within the legal system. And have there been any cases that have relied on that change? I don't know. It's only been in effect for like three months. So, Well, that is I'm pretty new. Yeah. Well, that's definitely interesting. I'll be looking to follow the evolution of law around animals and divorce in Alaska. I might add that within a month of that, getting a big PR throughout the United States that did that Connecticut and Alaska also, uh, Connecticut and Hawaii also had representatives submit a bill to that same effect. So it may be spreading. I think that's really, really good news for animals and for the people who love them, especially facing divorce. Right. So what is included in companion animal? Clearly it's dogs and cats. Does it include horses, you know, gerbils? Parakeets, uh, do you know? That, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a slippery slope, isn't it? You get down to goldfish and you wonder whether or not that makes any sense. I don't know. That's up to the legislature to decide how far they're willing to extend the resources of the state to deal with conflicts that people have. I'm pretty sure it would include mammals and birds. Yeah. Yeah. So, Professor Favor, what what do you think that people who are listening to you and me talk here on the radio should be thinking about in terms of their animals? And if you have advice to give animal lovers, people who own animals, whether or not they're considering divorce or not, what what would the advice be? Well, it would be good to think about the future a bit before it gets here and have tracks available for how you think about things. I, I think the one thing that's pretty easy for people in good relationships to think about is, well, what would happen if I die next week to my animals? And in doing that, I think you then focus yourself on, well, what are the resources available? What do I want? You know, and what might be good for the animal? That that gives some focus to the idea of the future. So thinking about where the animal might live, how they might be supported, and, and that kind of thing. Exactly. Right. And 
Are there lawyers who deal specially in creating trusts for animals or other kinds of uh, legal instruments to protect? It's it's pretty well integrated now into any reasonable trust or estate or will writing attorney would be able to do that at this point. There are books out there that that help set it up and non-lawyers could read some of these books. I think they'd be available. But um, any lawyer that does trust work would already have this as one of his tools in his in his bucket. So it would just be a matter of bringing to the lawyer's attention that you wanted to do something to protect your animals. Exactly. Well, Professor David Faber, it has been a pleasure having you on Divorce Dialogue on Divorce, and I really um, have appreciated your comments, and I'm sure our listeners have too. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you.